Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you would stand with me, we're continuing in the book of Romans, and we are in the ninth chapter. And in honor of God's word, we're standing together, and I'm going to be reading We're going to go through, we plan to go through the entire chapter this morning, but right now I'm just going to read verses 6, verse 6, and then we're going to jump all the way down to verse 30, and then we will pray and jump into our text this morning. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it it is not as though the word of God has failed For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Let's pray. Father, as we gather again, we are aware of your faithfulness to bring us through another week. And as we open your word this morning, I'm asking that you would help us to remember who we are that we are finite beings that are seeking to grow in our knowledge of the infinite God who has loved us, who has in Christ accepted us, who has made us your children and brothers and sisters with one another. And so this morning, as we are going through this somewhat difficult text, I ask that you would help us to walk in humility I ask that you would help us to walk in love, that our time together in your word might prove to be eternally profitable, that Jesus, you would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, at Reach Life Church, there's a saying that we have here, and that is, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is about relationships. We say that often, that the kingdom of heaven is about relationships, our relationship with God, and then our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the world in which we live. And as we all know, for various reasons, relationships can often be complicated, can't they? If you're in a complicated relationship, could you just put your hand up this morning? Okay, most of us are at times, and a lot of times we experience conflict in those relationships, And in that conflict, we often can, unfortunately, handle it poorly. For example, when I was 12 or 13 years old, um, I can remember my brother and I were fighting over who got to drive the tractor. 
like most of you do, you fight over who gets to drive the tractor, right? Well, we had a tractor on our property, and my brother was older than me, so he was bigger than me, he was stronger than me, he always got his way when he wanted to do something. I was the kid that would hang out with mom and dad, not with mom and dad, with dad and brother, little brother, and they would say, hey, James, we need a screwdriver for whatever project we're working on. So I would go like a quarter of a mile away, find the screwdriver, bring it back, and when you get back, what do they say? We don't need it now, right? So I was that guy. And on this day, my brother said, I said, I want to drive the tractor back to the house. And he's like, no, I'm doing it. So he kind of pushes me out of the way. And as he's driving off, I remember in my anger, okay, my childish anger, my youthful anger, I picked up a rock the size of my palm, and I hurled it at him like David did to Goliath. Okay, this is biblical. And I knocked the, he was wearing this cowboy hat and it knocked it off his head. That's not the way that you should deal with conflict, is it? Now he's still alive and I praise God he is because just a few inches below that, we would not, I would not be telling this story. But that is not the way to deal with conflict. And, and I bring this up about poorly dealing with conflict because for centuries, the church has had to deal with internal family conflicts. And as I mentioned last week, Romans 9, the chapter that we're going to be in this morning, is one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. And the, and the funny thing is, is we're all reading the same book, aren't we? And hopefully we all have the same goal. And that goal is that we would hear, that we would try to understand what is God? Why did God write this? through the Apostle Paul in this case. Why did he put it there? What is he desiring to communicate to us through his word? That is what our desire should be. And yet, as we're reading the scriptures, we don't always draw the same conclusions from the same passages. And this can at times produce conflict within the body. And sometimes we have separated unnecessarily. We have handled our conflicts unnecessarily uh, in, a, in a poor way, and we separate. This morning, I don't think, I want to show us that we don't have to separate over this passage. And as we move forward, I, I want us to, to keep a, a couple of things in mind. And in, First Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, referring to the Apostle Paul's writings, Peter says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard or that are difficult to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, chapter 9 for sure falls into this category of hard-to-understand passages. And when I was looking at the context of 2 Peter 3, now we're going to get to Romans 9 in just a second, but when I was looking at the context of why Peter was writing that, He's writing it because there were scoffers who did not believe that, that, that believed that God's word had failed. Because they say, where is the second coming of Jesus? You, you keep talking about Jesus coming back. If he's coming back, why has it taken so long? And look at what Peter says to him. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Listen, we serve a God who is outside of time. 
He doesn't process time like we do. Um, he sees all things. He understands all things completely and perfectly. And listen, God's intellect and his understanding, and I'm going to use the word infinitely, and it's not figuratively, I mean literally, his understanding is infinitely beyond our understanding. God is the one that wrote this. And in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 2, Paul says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's things in this passage that you still need to learn, that you have not grasped? We need to be in that place. Otherwise, we will be tempted to divide or to bicker or to have conflict over, over this passage. There is always room for growth in our understanding. And so therefore, as we approach this passage, I have been praying for us that we would approach it with humility and that we wouldn't be divided by the very truths that are meant to bring us together in love. And so as we move through our passage today, I hope uh, to do two things. I want to highlight areas that we agree on. There are a lot of areas in chapter 9 that should unite us together. And then I'm going to attempt, and I mean attempt, in a general way uh, to try to, to share differing yet possible interpretations of the text that are actually they're represented in our body. I know, uh, uh, Terry and I know our body. We talk to you. We've talked to many of you about chapter 9. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about in chapter 9. Some of you know what I'm talking about in chapter 9. Some of you are like, I don't understand why people argue over this. We have all walks of life when it comes to chapter 9. But what I want to make sure is that when we get to the end, we're walking in humility, love, and unity. Are you guys with me on that? Okay. With that said, let's get into the text. I'm going to go through quick context uh, because in the previous chapter, chapter 8, Paul has been, he's been soaring like an eagle. Um, he recounts our position in Christ. He is like on cloud uh, 10. And there, there's, um, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to say that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how he kicks off chapter 8. And I, I love what uh, Tim Keller says. He says, what that means is that God has nothing against us. He finds no fault in us. He finds nothing to punish us for. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus will never be punished or condemned by God. Ever. Never. And not only, not only that, but Paul goes on to talk about how we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to aid us in our weaknesses and to empower us as we wage war against the flesh and seek to live lives pleasing to the Lord. And then he ends with this famous declaration. I know that many of you, this is familiar to many of us. He says in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, will be able to separate 
us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if we can't be separated from the love of Christ, we shouldn't be separated from, from one another, right? The gospel is that powerful. And so this is where, honestly, this is where as a church we want to abide in the love of Christ. We want to go deeper into this, into the confident confession and worship that is found in Jesus, that we have been fully accepted by God through Jesus Christ. And as we enter into chapter 9, Paul is way up here, and all of a sudden, it's like he takes this nosedive into the dark valley of gloom. It's as if he suddenly remembers, well, what about those who are not in Christ Jesus, my brothers and sisters? And he's filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. We talked about that last week. His desire is that they would come to know Christ. And he is grieved over his Jewish brothers and sisters because of all people, they should have accepted the Messiah. Why? Because of the great privileges they had been given and had been bestowed upon them by God. The greatest of these is they, they had been the, the nation through whom Jesus had come, the Messiah had come into the world. And so from here, I want us, picking up with verse 6, I want us to ask uh, three questions, or I want to answer three questions that this passage addresses. Number one, if you're, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The first question we need to ask, has God's word failed? I want you to think of that in your head, the answer, don't give it out yet. But has God's word failed? Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, when I spoke about this last week, that when Paul wrote this letter, uh, the church was primarily packed with Gentiles. And this confused some people. This confused the Jews. It's kind of like um, if you go downtown and there was a sign on the, the a restaurant with a sign that said authentic Asian food, right? And you go inside that restaurant and behind the counter, everybody back there cooking is Ukrainian. And then you look around in the in, in the restaurant, and everybody in there, nobody's Asian except me, and I'm only half Asian. You'd be like, go back outside and look at that, su- that sign, right? Well, something's not right here. That's kind of what's going on here with the church. The question being asked is that since the Jews are the children of God, the chosen people of God, then why is the church bursting at the seams with Gentiles, and so sparsely populated with the Jews. And so they ask the question, has God's word, has God's plan failed? Now, this is an area, this is a truth that we all agree on, right? I want you to tell me, we're going to talk, we're going to, we're going to like go back and forth this, this morning like this, okay? So on the count of three, I want you to answer yes or no. Has God's word failed? One, two, three. Okay, good. We are in full agreement that God's word has not failed. God's word never fails. We all agree. If you're taking notes, write this down. We all agree that God's plan is unthwartable. We need to, we need to hold on to that together. First uh, Peter 1 Verses 24 and 25 says, All flesh, that is all people, are like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but 
the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, we all agree on that, that the word of God never fails. Let's keep going. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, if you remember, in the Old Testament, when we were going through the book of Genesis, we, we were taught that God chose Abraham out from among the nations and promised to bless him and to make him into a great nation through his descendants that they would come through him and it would become the nation of Israel, through whom also the Messiah would come. And this Messiah would not just be for the Jewish people, but for all the nations that would, would come. So everyone, what Paul is teaching here is that everyone who physically descended from Abraham isn't automatically a child of God. We already saw that back in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, when Paul is saying that, that no one who is a Jew is merely one outward, but a Jew is one inwardly. It's a matter of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not by keeping the law. And so this is another area, a section that we all agree on. We all agree that one is not saved by lineage. Now, if you, take, if you have a weekly, I want to apologize that point is not on the back, so you're just going to have to write that one in. But we, are, we all agree that one is not saved by our lineage, by our birth. Um, we teach this today in our churches. Uh, we, we warn everyone that just because uh, your mom or your dad or your grandma loves Jesus, or you come to a Bible-believing church that preaches the gospel, that does not mean that you are a child of God. You can't ride into heaven on the coattails of somebody else, on somebody else's faith. We all agree that we must have our own faith. Okay? So Paul is saying that not everybody who descended from Abraham is a, is a true child of God. Verse 9 says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so... But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I Hated. Okay, now this is where, in the passage, the bolts begin to loosen and the wheels begin to rattle and sometimes tires fly off of the cart. And it's because of an eight-letter word in this passage. Did you see the word? The word election. The word election. Now, whew, there are some in our congregation who believe that election is referring to an individual's salvation in this passage. In other words, that God chooses to save some while passing over others. 
And God does not reveal to us why he chooses to save some and pass over others, but he does say that it's not based upon their works. That is a view that, that is uh, held in our congregation. They, they basically would say it's solely up to God. And you know what? There's something we agree on in this path, in, in that, with each other in this. And that is that we all agree that one is not saved by works. That is something that we all agree in, in this section, that, that we are not saved by works. Now, there are others who understand the word election in, in this context to refer not to an individual's salvation. Okay, in this context, they don't believe that that word election is referring to, the, to an individual's salvation, but rather to God choosing to bring the nation of Israel and Messiah through Jacob's offspring rather than Esau's. And in this view, Jacob and Esau had no say, just like even in the previous view, Jacob and Esau had no say. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, I want to point out something here. When it says that God loved Jacob and that he hated Esau, it does not mean that God despised Esau, but rather that God chose or elected Jacob above Esau. It's kind of like in the New Testament. You know, when Jesus says, if you're going to come after me and follow me, you must hate everybody. You must hate your family. You must even hate yourself if you're going to be my disciple. Is he saying that we need to go and hate our parents and our brothers and sisters? No. What he's saying there is that you need to choose me above anyone else when it comes to your love. And that's similar to what God has done. He has chosen Jacob rather than Esau. So, some, as I said, believe that that election here refers to an individual's salvation. Others believe that it could refer to the nation of Israel. And then there's another camp that believes it could actually be referring to both. Regardless of your view, the point that we need to see here before we move to the next question is that, that God's word, his plan, has not failed. Let's look at, let, let's look at number, uh, question number two, and that is, is God just, blameless, and sovereign over his creation? In other words, because God elects people, regardless of which view you're taking, is God just? That is, is he morally right and fair? Is he blameless? Does he always do the right thing? And is he sovereign? Can he rule as he pleases over his creation? Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on, injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, before we move forward, I just want to point out that even here, we have shared agreement together. We all agree, or we should agree, that when man and woman rebelled in the garden, that God was not obligated to send a Savior. 
God was not obligated to send a Savior to come and be punished for our sins. Um, If you've ever read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, you know that Scripture is very clear that when the angels, when Satan and the angels rebelled against God, that Jesus did not die for their sins. Jesus, God did not make a way for the angels. So if you're taking notes, write that down. God was not obligated to send a Savior. But write this right after it. But he did. But he did. He did for us. And that's something that we, we cannot miss as we're going through this passage. That God did send a Savior. We, we agree that God has extended his mercy to all through his Son. Verse 17 says, For the Scriptures say to Pharaoh, we're going to keep moving, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So, Paul turns to three, refers to three things. He refers to Pharaoh, he refers to a lump of clay, and to a potter to make a point. Again, it's divided on what point he's trying to make, so I'm going to try to present both of them. There is uh, one that would say that this clay that Paul is talking about represents the entire human race, all of humanity, which is born hardened against God, and this, this clay, this uh, all humanity is unable to see It's unable to hear. It's unable to understand. It's even unable to respond to the call of the gospel uh, on on on, on its own volition. Therefore, God, using a thing called irresistible grace, chose some out of the clay, a smaller clay, uh, clump of clay, and softened it for honorable use. And he left, he passed over this group. And this would be the group that Pharaoh was in, in in this view, that this is where Pharaoh would be. And that Pharaoh, uh, basically God created Pharaoh, the one that oppressed the Israelites in Egypt, 
so that he could make his power known and his glory known through him. Not through salvation, but by able to exercise God's judgment. Now, others would say that the clay represents hardened Israel and uh, not all of humanity, and that um, over time, Israel hardened themselves against God. When God called to them, Israel hardened themselves. But there was a group that did not harden themselves, and that God chose them and caused, uh, had mercy on them. He had mercy on them, and he had compassion on them. And those who have this view, and again, I am, this is a very shallow view of both of these uh, camps, and by God's grace, we're going to talk more about them in missional communities. But I'm trying to give an overview of what these, because some of y'all are looking at me like, it's much more than that. I know, I know that. But there is a, the, the view that, you know, they would also say that they would agree with this passage that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he has compassion on whom he has compassion, and then ask the question, who is it in Scripture that God has mercy and compassion on? The humble, those who humble themselves before the Lord. And they would say, who does God harden? And the answer would be those who first harden their hearts against God. And if you study, then they would point to Pharaoh and say, if you study the account back in, in Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then God hardened his heart. In other words, Pharaoh refused to repent. He was not going to repent, so God just simply uses a vessel that would never have repented. Now, I know what I just have shared is very heavy stuff. It's very heady stuff. Um, it's very, um, can be very divisive. And it's, a, it's something that uh, the church loves to argue about. Just my own testimony, um, I've been in both camps, I mean really with, with a sword in both camps, and I've gone back and forth over uh, and divided over things like this. But you know what that, as, as I look back at James of old, what that showed me about James? James was immature in the way he handled the Word of God and used it to divide over this topic right here, what we're talking about right here. And so I don't want to end on those two questions. I want to end on the third question. And this is the one I think that we need to focus on. And it's something that we all agree on. And this is where we've got to give most of our attention. Because if you remember, at the beginning of chapter 9, God, uh, Paul expresses his sorrow for the nation of Israel, right? And the question that we need to ask is, who can be saved? That's the question we need to ask, because that's what this passage is going to end on. And we agree, I think we all agree, that all who come to God through faith in Jesus will be saved. Do we all agree on that, that, that are in Christ? We all agree, regardless of how you get into the boat, right? Because sometimes I think that's what we're arguing about in some way. It's not that simple, but we all agree that all who come to God through faith in Jesus will be saved. Look at verse 30 of, our, of chapter 9. What shall we say then? Paul is coming to his conclusion. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by what? 
faith, but that Israel who pursued a law, that is through works, that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Now look, he does not go back to election on this point, okay? I want, I want to point that out here. He doesn't go back to election. He says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on man's work. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. I think right here, whereas earlier he talks about election, I think right here he's appealing to man's responsibility. That man refused, the Jews refused to, to accept it by faith. But the Gentiles, the reason that the restaurant's full of Gentiles is because they received Christ by faith. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, we all agree that all who come to God through faith in Jesus will be saved, both Jew and Gentile. There is no dis distinction. And this subject of, of God's election and God's sovereignty and man's responsibility with regards to salvation and how they relate to one another, I, I, we don't have enough time this morning to really dive deep enough into this subject. As a matter of fact, if we spent the entire year on this subject, we still wouldn't get to the bottom of it. And I just need us all to see, as I started out with, I, I need us all to see that we all have holes in our theology. We all have areas that we don't understand. None of us knows as we ought to know. And I also want to make it land on that God did not give us Romans 9 to divide us, again, but rather to unite us and to give us assurance that his word does not fail, that God is just, blameless, and sovereign, and that all, and this is the one part I need us all to hear, that all who come to him through faith, through, to Jesus, through Jesus, will be saved. And you know, the reason I'm stressing that is because if we focus on the wrong thing, and in this passage, it is so easy to focus on the wrong thing. If we focus on the wrong thing, we miss the glory, we miss the wonder, and we miss the worship of who our God is. And that is summarized in verses 25 and 26. This is what I want to close on. God declares, and I pray that we would hear this afresh. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of of the living God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All who come to God through faith in Jesus will be saved. Amen?